In June of 1976, the newly built Teton Dam in eastern Idaho broke. It let loose a torrent of 80 billion gallons of water. A wall of water rushed down eastern Idaho. It killed 18 people, which is amazing it was so few. But it also killed 18,000 head of livestock. 25,000 people were left homeless. Three towns were completely flooded, and millions of acres of farmland were devastated. The federal government ended up paying out $322 million in damages. And Jan and I were living in nearby Pocatello at the time, about an hour and a half away. And I remember watching live TV as they were broadcasting all this devastation live. And you could see on the screen mobile homes floating down the deluge, and they were on fire. They were floating down the torrential flow, burning. The wall of flood water hit these mobile homes with such force that when they broke loose from their natural gas and propane connections, it exploded and they burst into flames. Burning homes floating down the river. How could that happen? Because they had not been built on an adequate foundation. Mobile homes, as you know, are just often put up on, on blocks. If the houses had been secured to a good, solid foundation, they were damaged, but they stood. And the houses without a proper foundation, at least in this case, they exploded into flames and they, they floated away. Now, there are dozens of both tragic and heroic stories that came out of the Teton Dam disaster. It's remarkable that the loss of life wasn't much greater, but, but two boys had been swimming in the Teton River downstream. Down and when they saw this wall of water coming at them, they ran and just before it overcame them, for some unknown reason, they both turned and they dove headfirst directly into it. If they hadn't, they would have been tumbled and under the deluge, the turbulence for miles, and they certainly would have died. When they dove into the wall of water, the force of the water ripped off their swimming suits. But they lived and swam out of the deluge. One of the more humorous accounts was about a family who was cleaning up their two-story home after the flood. And they came into the house and they were working around. And all of a sudden they heard a loud racket upstairs above them, a loud thumping. It sounded like a herd of buffalo. And they cautiously climbed the stairs and discovered a huge black Angus bull. <laughs> the great beast was hungry and he was as angry as a raging bull. During the flood, the bull had washed in an upstairs window, and it was now stuck at the bedroom. They had to deal with the bull and the impossibility. How do you get the bull through a door? It wouldn't fit through the doors, especially couldn't get down a staircase. And they hired a crane and lifted him out the same way he came in. I think they sedated him. I don't even know how they did that. But their home, even though it was damaged, had withstood the test because of a good foundation. And I like to put it this way, they still had to deal with the bull, but the house stood. So please, <laughs> so please turn once again to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the second chapter. Ephesians chapter 2, the 20th verse. Here we see that the building that Jesus built is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Built on the foundation. In other words, the ministry of the apostles and prophets is foundational in that they laid the foundation. 
In fact, that's exactly what Peter says over in his first letter to the Corinthians, if you want to turn to that. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning at verse 9, the third chapter of 1 Corinthians. Here Paul uses the same building analogy that we've seen in Ephesians already. Verse 9 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul writes, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field. He'd been talking about fellow workers in the field where, where Paul planted, Apollos watered, God brought forth the growth, and then he changes the analogy, God's building. God's building. You are God's building. Then Paul reveals his role and responsibilities as an apostle in the building that God builds. What did the apostle Paul do? Verse 10, he says, according to the grace which was given to me. Now, when he uses the word grace, as we've already seen here, according to the chorus, he's referring to his spiritual giftedness that the Lord has given him. That, that Paul said in another place that he was given this grace to preach the gospel. Here he says he's given this grace, according to the grace of God which is given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. As an apostle, Paul laid the foundation like a master builder. And now others are building on it. And then in verse 11, Paul tells us what the foundation of the building is. Better, who the foundation of the building is. Verse 11, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. There's only one true foundation. Now people try to build their lives in all kinds of things, but all the, everything else other than the Lord Jesus Christ is a faulty foundation and when the storms of life come, it's going to lead to destruction because it's, their lives were built on shifting sand. Last week, we talked about Jesus being also the cornerstone of the building. As the cornerstone, he is the standard for the quality and workmanship. They'd lay the cornerstone, and in, in the analogy, every other living stone in the building, every one of us as believers as living stones are being shaped, we're being honed, into the likeness of the cornerstone, because the cornerstone sets the standard. And that every one of us is to be in perfect alignment with the cornerstone. Now we learn that Jesus is also the entire foundation. Now Roman Catholicism and other so-called apostolic churches teach that the apostles are the foundation of the church. The church is built on Peter and the apostles. And many teach there is no true church which is not built on the apostles or what they call apostolic succession. And many of the cults operate this same way. They claim to have living apostles. They claim to have living, living prophets that hear directly from the Lord and their church is built on, on this. But Paul is clear. Jesus Christ is the only foundation for the true church of God. So in that respect, turn over to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. 16th chapter of Matthew, the 13th verse. This is that familiar place where Jesus said to his disciples that he would build his church and the gates of Hades would not prevail against it. And he also explains what the foundation is. Uh, the 13th verse of, of Matthew chapter 16. 
It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now Caesarea Philippi was up clear up in the northern part of Israel, near the base of Mount Hermon. It's in a region that used to be called Caesarea Philippi, but in that place today, there's a town known as Banias. Banias. In Jesus' day, the town was called Panias. Panias. It was named after the god Pan. Pan in the Greek means all. Pan was the all-inclusive god. Pan represented all the gods. Someone said he was a tsunami of gods. Ancient uh, art and statues represented Pan as having horns, having a pitchfork, and had cloven hooves. Does that sound familiar? And so in the Middle Ages, when they depicted Satan in art, they chose Pan as their model for Satan. Pan, Panius, the name was after the god Pan. And, and Panius was an extremely pagan re- region, as you can imagine. And it had the worship of many and all imaginable false gods and idols. In those days, a great spring of the river, a great natural spring, came out of a large rock face, out of a cave. The water came rushing out of this this cave. It was a natural spring. And so the water at Panius was considered to be the source of life. The water gushed out of the rock, refreshing the earth. So people came from all over to worship their particular pantheon of gods, that's what pantheon means, all the gods, pantheon of gods. Whatever they, god they wanted to worship, they came here to worship. And they would carve out, out of the rock face, these, these alcoves with a shelf, and they would place their idol in those shelves. And so the rock face was covered with these false gods, with, with these, these idols. And so their particular, they'd come to worship their particular god. And so... The Gospel of Matthew here records that when Jesus came into this region with the disciples, and I believe they were standing in front of all these false gods, all these idols in the rock face, and looking at all these gods, Jesus said, Who do men say the Son of Man is? Doesn't that make sense? You see, all these gods, who do people say the Son of Man is? What's the talk? And they said in verse 14, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. They answered, John the Baptist. Maybe John the Baptist has come back, or maybe he really wasn't killed. Or Elijah, that makes sense, because Elijah was the one who's to come and prepare the way for, for the Christ, right? Or maybe one of the other prophets like Jeremiah. Verse 15, he said to them, But who do you say? that I am. And this is one of those places where Peter gets it right. (laughs) Boy, does he get it right. Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter's great confession of faith. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God, the son of man, who is Jesus, but the son of man is also the son of God. And Jesus responded by indicating the source of Peter's insight. Where where did Peter get this? Verse 17, And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, 
because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. How did Peter know this? Where did this tremendous insight come from? From God the Father. God the Father revealed it to him. Do you know, did you realize that this same kind of insight and knowledge, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, that insight, that knowledge, that revelation is available to every one of us in Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul prayed for this at the beginning of Ephesians. You don't need to turn to it. On behalf of the Ephesian believers, he he prayed. And he prayed in verse uh, 17 of chapter 1, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. We can depend and we can rely upon the Holy Spirit of God to reveal the will of God. That's wisdom. And to reveal the truth of God. That's revelation. Wisdom is the ability to apply truth. Revelation is the true knowledge, the unveiling of the truth. So we can rely upon the Holy Spirit in the same way it worked in Peter's life here to reveal God's will to us, which is based on truth. There is a contrast. The contrast is human wisdom. Human wisdom. And there's nothing inherently wrong with human wisdom except that human wisdom is inadequate for the task. But it makes a poor foundation to build your life because it's going to crumble. And you're going to get it wiped out, as it were. You see, human wisdom is the sum total of human experience. You touch a hot stove, you learn not to touch it again. And that's wise. We can learn from human wisdom, but human wisdom is inadequate for the task. Human wisdom taught the people at Caesarea Philippi that the water that came out of the rock, that the water that came seemed to come from nowhere out of solid rock, had a divine source. And that source must have been one of their gods. Best candidate, Pan. That came from from Pan. Made sense to them. Human wisdom concluded the Son of Man was John the Baptist. Human wisdom concluded that it could have been Elijah or Jeremiah or a contemporary prophet. Wrong, wrong, wrong on all accounts. That's where human wisdom gets you. And verse 18 of Matthew chapter 16 brings us to one of the most controversial passages in the Gospels. But it shows us the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ. And as I have said, some have erroneously concluded that the church is built on Peter. The church is built on Peter, whose name means rock. Verse 18 of, of, of Matthew chapter 16, Jesus responded to Peter's confession of faith. He says, I also t- say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. You go, well, that sounds to me like Peter's the rock. Upon this rock, your name is Peter, which means rock. little understanding of the Greek really helps us at this point because Jesus used two different words for rock here. He said, you are Peter, a Petros, a little rock, a small stone, almost like a pebble. And upon this rock, Petra, a large rock face or foundation, I will build my church. Peter was a small rock, a pebble. No church can be built on him. But we also need to keep in mind where Jesus and the disciples are. They're standing in front of this 
this large rock face at Pantios. And Jesus says, you are Peter, a small rock, and upon this rock, not opposed to, to Peter, or not, and not opposed to this great rock face where people come to worship false gods, upon this rock, I will build my church. And what was that rock? What is the rock that Christ builds his church on? The foundation of the church is the revelation of the truth found in the confession of Peter. Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter the little rock doesn't compare to that, nor does this incredible rock face with all its idols and gods. The rock is the confession of Jesus Christ. Upon this rock a revealed truth about Jesus, the truth that you have just confessed. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Upon this rock I will build my church. And so the church of Jesus Christ is built upon the rock a revealed truth about Christ. Not on human wisdom, thou it is always going to fail. Human wisdom is sifting, shifting sand. Christ is the revealed, or the, the foundation is the revealed truth about Jesus Christ that has been laid by the apostles and prophets, the rock of revealed truth about Christ. So the ministry of the apostles and prophets is foundational. Their ministry laid the proper foundation. The foundation now that the whole building is being fitted together, is being built together. It's growing into a holy temple of the Lord. It's being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The apostles and prophets laid the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ. So in laying that foundation, what exactly did the apostles and prophets do? They received direct revelation from God, and their unique function was to authoritatively speak the word of God, to speak that revelation. In the Old Testament, it's prefaced by, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord. And God is speaking through a prophet or an apostle. And so the apostles and the prophets were appointed to receive and declare the revelation of God's word. The prophets and prophets spoke, and they also wrote down they panned the direct revelation of God. In other words, they gave us God's holy writ. All 66 books of our Bible, the word of God. From the mind of God, directly through the mouth of the apostles and prophets, or the pen of the apostles. So Peter reminds us of this when he refers to Holy Scripture. He says, no prophecy for prophecy never came by the will of man. That means it didn't come because man thunk it up and thought of it and this was a good idea. It never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Literally, it says they were born along by the Holy Spirit. And Paul wrote to Timothy, all scripture is inspired, literally by God, or literally God breathed. All scripture is God-breathed from the mouth of God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All 66 books of God's word. So the apostles and the prophets laid the foundation. They were appointed to receive and to declare the revelation of God's word. And so the Bible is the infallible, inerrant word of God. Infallible, it's never going to lead you astray. That's what infallible needs. Inerrant means 
that word for word, it is without error. And it reveals to us the rock, the Lord Jesus Christ, on whom we are to build our lives and on which the church is built. Now, there's another aspect of the ministry of the apostles that's important to mention. First of all, the apostles and prophets laid the foundation of the church. Secondly, they were appointed to receive and declare the revelation of God's word. And thirdly, they gave confirmation of that word through signs and wonders and miracles. Now, before the New Testament canon was complete, that is, the, the canon of books, the, from Genesis to Revelation, before that was complete and all of it had been written, and that comprises both our Old and New Testament, we could ask the question, how would God attest to his spokesman? In other words, how would you know that that prophet or that apostle, so-called apostle that came to town, how would you know that this is God's spokesman? And the, reason, the way that God determined to do that would be through signs and wonders and miracles. They, they healed the sick with a touch. They did other things that were, were miraculous and were a wonder. In other words, the spiritual gifts of miracles had a distinctly apostolic flavor. When Paul had to defend his apostleship to the carnal Christians who were critical of him, you know, they doubted his appointment that he was an apostle because these false apostles would come to town and they'd say, oh, Paul, he's really not an apostle. He just, you know, he came lately. How could he be apostle if he never walked with the Lord Jesus Christ physically, you know? And so, so these guys would come to town, they'd question Paul's apostleship so they could get their own, that their own following. And Paul wrote to the, second, or to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, he said of his ministry, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, how can you know and believe that I am a true apostle and my message or gospel is also true? How do you know I'm just not one of those guys that's blowing through town and, and getting a following? Because when I was with you, when I was among you, you witness the signs and wonders and miracles that God used to attest to the messenger and then also to the truth of the message. So the writer of the Hebrews wrote, How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was where it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. How was it confirmed to us by those who heard? God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. And so when Paul gave the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus came and he walked among us and he was crucified for our sins and he was buried and on the third day, he rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father. How do you know that that message is true? Because God attested to it through signs and wonders and miracles through the apostle. So, okay, that was the ministry of the apostles and prophets. We need to ask the question, who exactly were they? According to 1 Corinthians 12, 28 and Ephesians 4, 11, the first of the gifted men that God gave to the church were the apostles. What's an apostle? 
The Greek word translated in apostle is the word apostolos, and so it's a transliteration. We just bring it from the Greek directly into the English. Literally, it means a, a sent one, one who is sent. It refers to someone who is sent on a mission. In fact, the, the Latin word missio, from which we get our word mission, means the exact same thing as, as an apostle. A missionary, an apostle, is one who is sent on a mission. Now, in its primary and most technical sense, apostle is used only of the twelve. Only of the twelve. Jesus went up all night and he prayed all night up on the mountain. When he came down this morning, he, in the morning he selected twelve men and called them to be his sent ones. His apostles, he called, called twelve. It's also used of Matthias, who was chosen to take Judas' place. And it was used of Paul, who Paul said, I was untimely born. But he was chosen by Christ to be an apostle of the Gentiles. So turn over to Acts chapter 1, the first chapter of Acts, the 16th verse. This is when the apostles have been praying, or the people have been praying, 120 of them, and they got together on a regular basis for a prayer meeting and met in the upper room. And this is when Matthias was chosen, and certain criteria to be an apostle were established by the 11 apostles. And so in verse 16, this is after the ascension of Christ, during the prayer meeting, Peter stood up and addressed the 120 who were present, and he says in verse 16 of Acts chapter 1, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. So he's basically saying, we've got to replace Judas. And then Peter explains that another must take the office of Judas, and he carefully then lays out the qualifications to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. Verse 21. Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And so we see two very clear qualifications here to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. To be an apostle, he must have walked that entire time, as it were, the three or three and a half years that Jesus walked with this earth, and he personally discipled his men. All the time it says that Jesus went in and out from among us. I would put it this way. To be an apostle of Jesus Christ, you must be personally discipled by Jesus Christ. So what about Paul, the one untimely born, as Paul put it? After his road to Damascus experience and conversion to Christ, Peter or Paul went into the Arabian desert for three years didn't he? I believe that however Jesus accomplished it during that time, Paul was personally discipled by Christ Jesus in the Lord, in the desert. And the second qualification was that to be an apostle, he had to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. He must have seen the resurrected Christ. Paul saw the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. And so Paul fulfilled these qualifications. And this is important. No one today fits the qualifications to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. No one. Paul was the last one to meet the qualification. 
And contrary to what some people teach today, there are no apostles of the church. And if any church claims to have apostles, at the, the best, they should be suspect. At the worst, they're a false church if they claim to have apostles and prophets. Their ministry was foundational. The foundation has been laid. You can't build a second foundation or add to the existing one after the building is being built. The Bible is complete. It contains the whole counsel of God. God is not giving direct revelation today as he did to the apostles and the prophets. One writer compared it to a constitutional convention. When the convention is over and the document has been written and approved, the office of delegate ceases, right? They've done their work. James Madison was considered the, the most influential framer of the U.S. Constitution. But there's no framers and delegates of the Constitution around today. You know, how, how weird would it seem to say, you know, in our government, at our city hall, we have framers and delegates to the Constitutional Convention. <laughs> you go, no, I don't think so. When the New Testament was completed, the office of apostle ceased. When the, New Testament, when the Old Testament was completed, the office of the prophet ceased. When the New Testament was completed, the office of the apostle ceased. But there are others besides the Twelve and Paul who are called apostles in the New Testament. What are we going to do with these? There was Barnabas. He was an apostle. Silas and Timothy. There's a few other outstanding leaders, including Andronicus and Junius, which is kind of interesting because the name Junius is feminine. It's a woman name. She was a woman. Yet Paul wrote that she was outstanding among the apostles. So she was an apostle. So what do you do with others who are called apostles, and, and what is the application of that today? Remember, apostle means simply one who is sent. It's a sent one. Somebody's sent on a mission. It's synonymous with missionary, and that really helps a lot. All these other apostles that are named in Scripture are not apostles of Jesus Christ in the sense that we have talked about it this morning. They are not those who are sent directly by Christ. None of them fit the, the distinction, the qualifications here. They are called in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 23, to be apostles or messengers of the churches. See the difference? Of the churches. Apostles or messengers of the churches. They are sent out, they are the sent ones from the churches, not directly from Christ, not in the sense of the apostles we, we've talked about this morning, and today we call them missionaries. They are sent out by the churches. Paul was an apostle and called of God and sent out by Jesus Christ, called to preach the gospel to other people. Barnabas was also an apostle, but he was sent out in this sense from the church. And they were the first two missionaries, right, from Antioch. And they were sent out by the church, but Paul, being an apostle, was also sent out by Jesus Christ. And so today, God may have gifted you. He may have called you to go to a place and establish a new work for him or to work among unreached peoples. In that sense, the missionary is doing a foundational work, but in the it's not the foundation of the church. It's the establishing of a foundation for a ministry among these people because the foundation of the body of Christ was laid only by the prophets and, and apostles of Jesus Christ. 
In fact, Paul wrote of this in Romans. He says, And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ had already been named, so I'd not build on another man's foundation. So there he's talking about the foundational of ministry there. Missionaries do work, do the work of naming the name of Christ in places where it has not been heard or not been heeded. And serving there is a desperate need for Christ's love to be exhibited. In a sense, that is a foundational ministry. And there's a great need for missionaries today. Jesus declared, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. If you want to know who the apostles are, the sent ones from Grace Baptist Church, go look at the bulletin board. I like that when... uh, Jerry will kind of mix things up once in a while, just see if we're looking at it, <laughs> just see if we're, we're noticing. And, and once in a while, Steve will hide the, the budget at a glance in places and say, take a look for that, because, uh, yeah, if you just stand there and think about these sent ones that were participating in sharing in their ministry. God also gave to the church gifted prophets. And as we have seen in many respects, their foundational ministry was identical to the the apostles of Jesus Christ. And so in the foundational sense, there are no prophets today. The Old Testament prophets disappeared with the last book of the Old Testament when it was completed, Malachi. And the office of the prophet and his foundational ministry ceased when the New Testament was complete. The revelation of God's word is complete from Genesis to Revelation. No more books are being written. And so in this dispensation, as we say, God is not speaking directly from his mind through the mouth or pen of a prophet. And so like the apostles of Jesus Christ, no one fits the qualifications of being a prophet of God today. No one fits. But to give you a little teaser, we will be talking in some length about the spiritual gift of of prophecy. What is that? What does that look like? Just a little teaser to get you thinking. But I want to close with this. In the 1860s, Samuel John Stone wrote the hymn, The Church's One Foundation. The Church's One Foundation. And the hymn that that Stone wrote was a response to a large schism in the church in South Africa. There was a powerful, prominent, highly influential bishop in the church in South Africa who had originally come to South Africa as a missionary. And this bishop, who was highly influential, had a great following, had declared the Bible was fictitious. The Bible was fiction. He also maintained that blacks and whites were created separately. Can you imagine? We'd go, how how could they even believe such heresy? But many people did. And this controversy that raged in in South Africa even had repercussions of the church in England, clear back in in Britain. So how do you deal with this? And so as a response, Samuel John Stone wrote a set of hymns that were based on the Apostles' Creed. And one of those hymns based, I believe it was on the ninth article, is the church's one foundation. So with that context, re-listen to these words. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water in the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Elect from every nation, yet one or all the earth, 
her charter of salvation. One Lord, one faith, one birth. One holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food, and to one hope she presses with every grace endued. And then there's a third verse that's not in our hymn books and not in most hymn books. It goes this way. Though with a scornful wonder men see her sore oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed, yet saints their watch are keeping, their cry goes up, how long? And soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. But, says the hymn writer, the church will never perish. Her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those who hate her and false sons in her pale, against the foe or traitor, she never shall prevail. And then back to the words we're familiar with. Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore, till with the vision glorious her longing eyes are blessed, and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. Yet she on earth hath union with God the three in one, and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. O happy ones and holy, Lord, give us grace that we, like them, the meek and lowly, may on high dwell with thee. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for just giving us an idea today of the foundation, the cornerstone of Jesus Christ and what that means to us. Father, I pray that as we work and serve and even build our own lives, Father, that we will be sure and safe and secure because we build on the right foundation, on Jesus Christ, on the rock. We know there's going to be storms that come against us. We know that there's going to be all kinds of stuff that will try to derail us. And try to get us to build on something else, Father. And we know that we will go through the storms of life. And the churches even go through difficulties that are hard and, and a struggle. And there can be many things that, that come against us, Father. But we thank you for the promises you have given us in your word. The rock, Jesus Christ. And Father, may we ever mindful of all that this means as we go about living our lives and building our lives and all knowing that, Father, this is the church that you are building. And we are so blessed. We are so pleased to be part of something that is glorious, that is wonderful, that is marvelous, and something that is eternal. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.